Um, so my childhood does not begin um, in a traditional sense. The attorney and the judge who facilitated this were both under investigation up until the times of their death. In 2020 is when I found out that I had been missing for 37 years. You were yeah. still placed back in that home. And so I, I went back out with the knife and I was ready to stab him. Everything in life is designed to take you out. It's your choice how much you want to fight for your life. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to season two of Adam Was Mad, a podcast where we discuss all things childhood mental health. I'm your host, Michelle, and each week I speak with a guest who either experienced mental health struggles as a child themselves, is parenting a child who has a mental health diagnosis, or who's a professional in this field. A quick cautionary note, many of our episodes do talk about trauma of various kinds, so listener discretion is advised. Every story is important and valued, and every story reminds us we're not alone out there. You have a village of people who understand exactly what you're going through and who can help. If you're looking to connect more closely with that village, join us on Facebook in the group Your Village by following the link at the top of today's show notes. When you join, enter your email to receive our free monthly resource. Hopefully you'll learn something new, hear something interesting, or truly just be reminded that you're not alone. Without any further ado, let's get to today's episode. everyone. Welcome back. Today, I'm chatting with Kalila. Welcome, Kalila. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. I'm so glad you're here today. We're going to be talking about your childhood growing up and how the trauma that you experienced as a youth and young adult impacted your mental health. So let's just start from the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. Sure. Um, so my childhood does not begin um, in a traditional sense. It does in the fact of like having um, a mom and a dad. And even though I don't have any memory of things being okay, or there being some struggles between my parents, um, from the time I was born until three years old, seemingly everything was good. Uh, at the age of three, my mom picked me up one day, packed me up and left without a word to anyone. Uh, she left and um, traveled through the through California and ended up in Las Vegas, uh, where her dad was, and I believe her sister might have been there as well. I'm not really sure. We're still unpacking and unfolding a lot of my story. So uh, every few weeks, I find out something new. So <laughs> it's ever evolving. But um, at the age of three, I was transported by my mother down to Las Vegas, and a gray market adoption took place. So let me explain what a gray market adoption is because not everybody is familiar with that terminology. In black market, white market, gray market, we have different varying things, um, varying degrees. Most people are familiar with what the black market is. So we're familiar uh, with things like selling organs or 
illegal goods being acquired, uh, things of those of that nature. Um, in the white market, you have your things for bartering or for going to the grocery store, just doing those different types of things that are done through legal channels. And then you have this gray space in between, which is something that's still illegal, but done through legal channels. So it passes just enough to not really raise suspicion in the normal sense. So my adoption was a brokered deal. My mom was working in the casinos and I, I'm guessing that's where she came into contact with the people that would end up being my buyers, or perhaps it was her dad that knew somebody. To be honest, I'm still finding out and trying to learn about all of it. But at the end of the day, what ends up happening is at the age of three, I'm abandoned at an emergency shelter. My mother claims that my dad abandoned us when I was an infant, which I know to not be true because I have pictures of them all the way up until she left, of them together, of them with me, of me with them and grandma and grandpa. So there was never any period of time where my dad just abandoned us, right? right. So, but this is the claim that she makes to the state of Nevada in dropping me off at this emergency shelter. So at that point, I am in foster care, if you will, except I don't think I was there for that long because almost immediately I am placed with, and I, and I say placed very loosely because again, it's more of a, a brokered arrangement, but I'm placed with this couple that is from Central America they are not here with any kind of citizenship whatsoever. And yet this is who becomes my caregivers, my foster parents. And inevitably my mother is, um, is essentially uh, terminated her parental rights, but uh, she and my grandfather, uh, they they facilitated the paperwork to make the adoption happen with this couple. What I've learned is that so essentially this couple ends up being my buyers. The the deal is brokered, um, the arrangement is made, they get it through the courts. My mom and her dad get this attorney, everything is passed through legal channels, the adoption goes through. When we look at the at state's care, the US, and I know this from having gone through foster care to adopt or foster to adopt classes uh, and, and having been in that world as an adult, um, they're not very keen on placing children that speak a different language with a family that doesn't speak the same language because there's no way for them to communicate. Right. right? And especially so, at that age. Exactly. So three years old, I'm an American child who speaks English and I am placed with this family who has no other family in the United States. It is just them. They don't speak any English at all, like just enough to kind of get by. 
right? Because the the gentleman who was my buyer, who I thought was my dad, because that's how I grew up thinking that these people were my parents, because I was too young to remember anything else. Uh, he worked as a busboy in a hotel and she didn't work. So something fishy had to be going on in order to make that happen because on a busboy salary, I don't care what decade we're living in. You don't have a house. You don't have two cars. Your wife doesn't not work and you get to adopt a child. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, adoption in general, you know, leaving the ethics of it aside is notoriously expensive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what I've learned in the recent months uh, is that the attorney and the judge who facilitated this were both under investigation up until the times of their death. No way. Yes, because there were so many adoptees coming out and saying that there was something wrong or finding out that their biological parents were forced to, uh, to terminate their parental rights or were not given sufficient time to actually do any of the prerequisites that the court would have had for reunification or any of those things and weren't notified properly to where they just lost their rights. And And do you think that's what happened to your mom? Or do you think that there was a little more intention uh, behind it? I think there was a little bit more behind it. And I say that because our first interaction when, when we were reunited, um, the, some of the first words that she spoke to me were, did you have a good life? That's all I ever wanted for you. So do I believe that this happened on some malicious intent of trafficking level? No. Nonetheless, the trafficking still happened. Right. And in ending up with this family is where my my history gets interrupted. And my history gets interrupted by trafficking. Mm. Uh, they are using me for, for their purposes, sexual and otherwise. There were uh, quote unquote male friends of the family that would come in and go. And this transpired all the way up until I was, it it went on until I was 12. But the first time that I self-reported to the state that there was something wrong at home was the day after I turned 11. And I didn't know that it was abuse. I didn't know that it was sexual abuse. I didn't know that it was molestation. I didn't know that beatings weren't okay at random. And I certainly didn't have the framework to understand that I was additionally being trafficked and that I had ended up with this family as a means of a brokered deal. Right. Right, Um, right. I was that I was sold. And so when I reported my thoughts at, you know, just turning 11 were, can we just make it stop? Like, I don't really want to, you know, I don't want anything to happen to anybody. Right. But I also want it to stop. And that did not I, I didn't understand what was going to happen next. And what happened next was that. I was called back down to the office a number of times to retell my story to multiple people. Uh, 
law enforcement was brought in, child protective services were brought in. And again, the retelling of my story over and over and over and over. So re-traumatizing. Absolutely. All in one day. And so we hit the end of the school day and I'm, I'm standing outside the office and I didn't know that my, um, I refer to them as my buyers now. I, I no longer refer to them as my parents, but, um, I, they, I didn't know that they were coming to pick me up from school that day together. Cause normally it was just her that would come and get me never him because he was always at work because he worked uh, the swing shift. And so they both show up, I guess they were planning on us going out of the country for a while because they had to keep renewing their visas. Right. Oh, geez. So we went overseas all the time, which is again, the clue. And as an adult, Oh, you weren't really here legal, legal, like you were, but not really. Right. Right. <laughs> right? Like you were here legally, but you had to keep going back to get your papers redone. Yeah. Or whatever it needed to take yeah, place. Yeah, travel like visa. Mm-hmm. Right. You can only exactly. be in the country for three months at a time. I, you know, right. I, I lived abroad for a while myself and right. I had, there were other people I was going to school with who did that, who would, you know, right. instead of getting a student visa, they'd leave the country right. every three months so that they could come back and Precisely. be quote unquote legally there on yes. a, on a travel that, visa. Like you said, that gray area. That gray area. Absolutely. And so they're picking me up and I didn't know. So they're standing there. I'm standing there with CPS and all of the school staff and school lets out and everybody is there to witness everything that is going on. Mm. As I have these buyers yelling and screaming at me that I am a liar. How dare I speak against the family? What have I done? I'm shameful, all of these things. And I'm being whisked away by Child Protective Services. And you're 11. The day after I turned 11. Oh my God. Yeah. So, and then if that's not enough, (laughs) they never saw a day in jail. Oh. And I was placed back in the home within two weeks. Oh my God. I just, I have no words. I... I mean, I, you know, that happens right in, in the foster care system. We've all heard the horror stories of, you know, how children are placed back into abusive homes, but this, and I, I don't want to make it sound like any child should ever be placed back in an abusive home. They shouldn't, but this was so far beyond Right. That yes. it's crazy to me that with the police, with CPS, with school officials, with all of these adults who should have protected you, right, involved and knowing what was happening, you were yeah. still placed back in that home. I was. I mean, handed back to people who are quite literally pimping you out. Yeah, exactly. And so now he wasn't allowed to be there initially, but she was. And as it goes with, you know, a lot of cases that are seen within the foster care system, he was eventually granted uh, supervision and it Mm -hmm. had, or not supervision, I'm sorry, uh, visitation, but it had to be supervised. So initially we go through that and it's being supervised by an officer of the court. And then the court decides that she can supervise the visits. So... She, oh my God. <laughs> I just, oh, I get it. <laughs> so I, she, she supervises the visits. And of course, 
everything just starts back up because there's there's no real supervision. Well, there's happening. there has been now no accountability at all. So not yes. only do you now as a child get the message that reporting does nothing, right? But now these buyers of yours have also gotten the message that we can do whatever we want. There's absolutely no accountability. There's no, There's no consequence. There's no repercussions. Yeah. So he eventually moves back into the house because he's allowed to. Uh, and within a year, I'm self-reporting again. This time, though, because the message that I understood as a child was that coming from them was that if I said something, I was shameful and I was to blame. So what I did was I told a friend at camp Mm. because I knew that my friend at camp, I knew that her dad was a cop. And I thought, well, if I tell her, she's going to tell her dad. Right. Because somewhere in my mind, and I believe that God is the reason why I, why I had that prompting to do that. Um, I fully believe that the Holy spirit directed that because at the age of 11 or 12, there's not really an understanding that you don't think your friend's going to go tell their dad and certainly isn't going to have the language. And that also, you don't know at that age that cops that are parents teach their kids about certain things. Cause you're 11. Right. You right. don't think about that at 11 years old, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe today's 11-year-olds did, but back then in the 80s, we did not. No. Uh, so, <laughs> Stranger danger was about all we were taught. <laughs> right, exactly, which is horrible because it's not stranger danger. It's inappropriate behavior. It's inappropriate touch that needs to be taught. Right. Not stranger danger because that can come from anybody. It Absolutely. Can come from it can come from a family member and we have to respect bodily autonomy, which we weren't taught that back in the day. Yeah. Right? Consent so. was not a buzzword. That was no, not something, was not. not only not a buzzword, but not even a vocabulary word. No. I mean, it was so loosely, you know, kind of there and not enough to where anybody really understood it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I told my friend, uh, more in hopes that she would tell her dad. Right. Uh, and so, and she did thankfully. And so the whole situation that happened at 11 happened again at 12 at <sighs> camp. So once again, I'm being called down, retelling my story again to whatever camp service YMCA people were there. <laughs> and then CPS gets called in, law enforcement gets called in. I'm retelling all over again. And here we hit the end of the day again. Here they are picking me up. Here's CPS. Here's all of the kids. Here's all of these strangers now on top of that at the Y. Right. All watching this unfold. And oh. again, what did you do? The, the same message over and over. But this time they didn't send me back to that house. Probably because I informed them that if they did, because this is where my mental state was at the time, I was so angry and so, I don't even think I can put language to the emotions that I was, that I would have been feeling then. I, I can tell you that my emotions and my mental state were in a, 
I need to protect myself mode and I need to do it at any cost. And so, for example, I remember in that year span, he was doing some sort of yard work outside and he had asked me to go grab him a knife from inside because there was something he needed to cut. And in my mind was, this is your chance. This is wow. how you get away. Wow. To have that type of thinking at the age of 11 is horrifying to me as an adult. Yeah. That an 11 year old would think that way of this is my only way out is I'm going to take this knife and put it to them. And so I, I went back out with the knife and, and I was ready. I was ready to stab him. And she walked out and said, what are you doing with that knife? And I said, oh, nothing. And I handed it to him because at that point it was, you know, understood. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not getting away with anything. Right. Yeah. You were windows caught. Open, <laughs> the window shut. And so when, when I got taken back into the foster care system, I made it very clear to them, do not send me back because the next time I'm not going to hesitate. Right. I'm going to follow through. And so I tried to communicate that in whatever language I could at the age of 12 of, if you send me back there, you guys are going to end up putting me in prison because I'm going to have to defend myself because nobody else is doing it for me. Oh, that gives me chills. And it really, I, I mean, I have goosebumps listening to this, but what it really reinforces to me is the strength we all have inside and the strength that children have for survival. I mean, the fact that that went through your mind and you were ready to follow through because you knew that's how you survive. It's so unbelievably strong. And it's so, I mean, obviously it's driven from this place of terrible trauma and crisis, but yeah. it's also so, so strong to say, I am going to live and I am going to survive this no matter yeah. what I have to do. And to be able to not only know that in your heart, but articulate that to the adults around you and say, do not send me back because I will do what I need to do to survive. I yeah. mean, it's amazing. It's I'm in awe of, of the strength that, that you had as a literal child. You know, it's, it's funny. And I, and I appreciate your, your words of kindness. I, I often think about different things in my childhood and in my spaces of trauma and, one question that I get from people is like, were there any good times? Was there anything positive out of that? And there were, there wasn't always horrific. <laughs> it was more horrific than not, but um, like I can recall that one of the things which ended up turning into spiritual abuse at some point was that we still went to church and we did Bible memory verses and we did, you know what I mean? Like that was also part of the normal yeah. if you will, routine of life for me was that, yes, we did this, but this was also my life. And so um, to hear you speak on, on my strength, I have this, this tattoo, it's Philippians 4.13 and Philippians 4.13 says that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Mm. 
and that's the only memory verse that ever stuck with me from that space of trauma was that I can get through this because of Christ. Now, that said, I also turned around and pretty much gave God the big middle finger and wanted nothing to do with him for the next 20 years of my life because I blamed him for my trauma, which he didn't have any blame in that. That's that's man's decision to act in an evil way and to, uh, to capitalize on whatever evil, lustful desires that they have. That's not something that, that comes from God, but it would take me until my thirties for me to really get that message and understand that. So, uh, every time I hear somebody say, you know, you're strong, you're this, that that's, that's what I remember is, is that verse. And it's, it's, it, for me, it's, it's like God giving me another reminder. See, you can do it. You I'm can. giving you the strength to get through it. You can, you can overcome this. Absolutely. You know? Well, so tell me about that. How did you overcome this? How do you get to be this strong, lovely, independent, successful woman sitting in front of me having this conversation today? I mean, how did you get there? You know, honestly, it, again, it's still all, it's still all God. Uh, I had to come to a place of surrender and I had to come to a place of understanding that I'm not, life is going to suck no matter which way I do it. You're not getting out of life unscathed. You're just not. Everybody's going to have a trial. Everyone's going to have a tribulation. Everybody's going to have varying degrees of trauma in their life. It's just part of being human. It's the human experience, right? Because even though I'd like to say that my trauma ended at 12, it didn't. Because I continued to be exploited and re-trafficked as an adult. Oh, God. So that continued for me until the year of 2013. Wow. When I finally was fully removed from any kind of exploitation or trafficking. How did that happen? How did you finally get out of this life? And I mean, we do hear about children who are trafficked becoming adults who were trafficked, right? That's yes. a very typical um, right. result. It reminds me of what you said about not having the words to be able to articulate as a child that you're being sure. abused. Right. And if you are a child who's been trafficked essentially your entire life, and then you become an adult who's being trafficked, it's not like you can just wake up one day and go, huh, I'm being sexually exploited. I'm going to stop no. that now. I mean, that's right. not how it happens. No. Right? You are absolutely, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, you know, to be honest with you, I don't think that I had the language or the understanding that trafficking was part of my history until 2020. Wow. So you got out of the, this situation or you began to detach from the situation in 2013 and it took until 2020 to really be able to say, this is what was happening to me. Yes, I, because I still didn't have language for it. Wow. Because for me, growing up and even in my adult years, that was just life. Right. It was what you, it was I didn't normal. have an understanding. It's no different than someone, you know, who's like, I've heard older generations talk about, we didn't know that we were poor because- this is just what it was. So for me, it wasn't any different. I didn't know that 
this was trafficking. I didn't know that I was being sexually exploited because the message was that this is what you are for. This is all you can do. And this is how your life works. Right. So I didn't have language or understanding that it was not that. And so even though I had language to understand, yes, you were abused. Yes. To all of those things. It wasn't until 2020 that I learned that I had been sold when I was three. So I didn't learn about any of that until 2020. In 2020 is when I found out that I had been missing for 37 years, that my name wasn't my name, that I wasn't Latin, that I was actually African-American and uh, Caucasian. I had no idea, no clue. And everybody knew about me except me. So, so I really genuinely didn't have the understanding or the language or any of that to couple my experience with. And so in learning that is where I think I really began to get my freedom because even up until then, I still lived in a mindset and in a space of victimhood to a degree, not in the sense that I made excuses for why I couldn't do X, Y, or Z, uh, because you do have some people and I don't, and maybe excuses isn't the right word. You do have some people who just haven't hit that space in their healing journey where they can say, I don't have to be this because this happened to me. Mm. For me, thank God I had that mindset very early on in life that I was not going to use this experience that I was having as a crutch or a reason for why I couldn't accomplish whatever it was that I wanted to accomplish. But I still had these, these chains wrapped around my mind, psychologically speaking, in how I responded, how I interacted with people, then all of that trauma affected my mental health in a way that I didn't understand. I didn't understand that I was dealing with depression in and out. I didn't understand that I had complex PTSD. I didn't understand that this was anxiety. And you couldn't tell me that it was coming from that. I didn't have that understanding. I just figured, oh, it's okay. It's just ebbs and flows of life. This is just how my life is. This This is is just what everybody deals with. Absolutely. How did you get to that point where you started to realize, oh, this isn't normal. And I do have some mental health work to do here because of what happened to me. Absolutely. So in 2020, when I started discovering all of these different facets of my life and really started to have and understanding and language to put behind. And when I finally started to really learn about trafficking and learned about it, and I said, oh, that's my life. That's what ha- <laughs> That's what it's called. <laughs> okay. So that's what that is. And so I, in, I knew right in that moment, even from the first email that I got of your name isn't your name and you were illegally adopted, when that first email hit my and I'm sorry, it wasn't an email. It was it was uh, through Messenger due to a, a wonderful woman named Randy Ann who was instrumental in all of this. And uh, when she when she sent me that, I was overwhelmed, and I knew in that moment 
this is going to be a lot to unpack. And Mm -hmm. I do not have the capability of doing this by myself. And I need to reach out to get support in place to help me navigate this. So I understood I need to seek somebody out for therapy to talk to. There's a beautiful quote that I saw years ago, and it said, God didn't rescue you for yourself. God rescued you so that you could go and get the others. Oh, I love that. So for me, people often ask, like, how do you work in the anti-trafficking sector? Isn't that hard? And I say, you know what? I don't have a choice. My trials, my tribulations, my experiences weren't so that I could just sit on a log and do nothing with them. Right. They weren't for me to have a pity party. They weren't for me to even have a platform, right? So so like none of it was about that. We have a choice in every situation that we face in life. We can either choose to sit on the pot and do nothing with it and say, woe is me and live our lives amok and without any purpose, or we can say, what can I do with this? And you've taken this trauma and you've used that now to help others too, and to share your strength that you had with others, which, which actually brings me to, to my last question for you, which is if somebody out there is listening right now and thinking to themselves, I've never used the word trafficking to describe what I've been going through and what my life is like, but holy shit, her story sounds like mine. What advice would you give to them? You know, there's a few things you can't, as a child, I can't change my experience that happened in my teenage years, my adult years. I can't change any of it. What I can do is make a choice about what I do with that and move forward. Those are choices that I can make to the choice of, of saying, well, God did this. I encourage you to not because he didn't, he didn't. And I wish I would have had that revelation earlier on in life. I believe that it would have put a stop to the rest of what I had to experience because of my choice to turn away and blame him, because then I no longer was dealing with my situation. I was just sitting in it Mm. and saying, well, this is my life. This is just how it's going to be. It doesn't have to be. And honestly, you know, even more so when it comes to that, there's a specific word that God gave me back in 2021. And because I was having this space of, what do I do? I'm hearing these stories. They sound like mine and you you get overwhelmed, right? And what he told me (laughs) in just such a sweet and gentle way is you are not your past Mm. and you don't have to live there. If you don't choose to, that's beautiful Choose to say yes to me, let me show you what I can do with all of these broken pieces in Asian countries. If a vase breaks, they used to put it back together with gold and it becomes this beautiful masterpiece. Our broken pieces can be made into a beautiful masterpiece. If we allow God to step in and put us back together. Because so beautiful. he can do that. If somebody's currently experiencing a story that sounds anything like mine, 
I know it's scary to step out. I know it's scary to ask for help because you're worried about what might happen to your family. You're worried about if nobody does anything and if you're going to catch another beating. Fight for your life because nobody else is going to but you. No one else is going to fight for you the way that you will fight for you. Everything else in life is designed to take you out. It's your choice how much you want to fight for your life. But you don't have to stay where you are. And you don't have to be a product or a statistic or whatever society tells you that you're going to be because these experiences happen to you. I am living proof that I am not my past and I am not the culmination of those experiences. I am more than a trafficking survivor. I am a woman who has purpose that was birthed out of pain. And everybody is entitled to that story. What a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. If people want to learn more about your story, if they want to chat with you, share their own stories. I know you have a book coming out soon. If people want to read your book, yeah, tell me about that. Yeah. So I recently um, did a project with Empty Frames Initiative. And uh, Empty Frames Initiative really is centered around trying to um, put supports in place for youth coming out of foster care so that they don't end up in these vulnerable situations where trafficking happens, getting involved in drugs and addiction happens. And they have this book that they've put together. The first volume of the book is a story of foster care. Um, and then the second volume where I've co-authored with several other survivors is the story of foster care volume two. And it is talking about the intersections of human trafficking and foster care. Um, and so that will be out this summer. Um, and so that's exciting. Uh, and then um, as far as connecting with me, I do have a website uh, that is uh, www.kalilariga.com. I know that's a mouthful. It's K-H-A-L-I-L-A-R-I-G-A.com. Um, and then all of my social media links are posted on there. I welcome for people to reach out if they're looking for resources, if they're looking for advice or just someone to see them and where they're at, feel free to reach out. That's why I'm here. And I will do my best to connect you with the places and spaces for where you're at. Amazing. And listeners, we're going to have all of those links in the show notes so that you can connect with Kalila. Kalila, thank you so much for sharing your inspirational story. It's truly been a privilege. Absolutely. Thank you so much again for having me on the show. I appreciate it. That's all for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to follow or subscribe and check out today's show notes for free downloadable resources and a link to join your village, our Facebook community. Catch you next time.